We are in Luke chapter number 9 as we continue studying verse by verse through Luke's gospel account. Today we are looking at verse 18 down through verse number 27. Luke chapter 9, verse number 18. The word of God says, And it came to pass, that as he was along praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the prophets of old is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon this time as we consider your word. May you be glorified. The chief end of man is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. So, Father, we ask for your blessing upon this time for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the text today, we find answers to two very important questions. The first being, who is Jesus? And I think that's a question that we see Jesus present in different ways here. And we need to consider in ourselves, how do we answer this question? The second takes that even further then in, what does this mean? See, it's one thing to be able to answer, and even be able to answer correctly, who is Jesus? Even the devils do this with fear and trembling. But it's another thing to be able to grasp, yes, but this is what that means, and here's what we are to do with it. So I want us to consider today the topic of following Christ by answering those two questions with our text. In verses 18 through 20, we find Jesus alone with his disciples praying. During this time, he asked them who the crowds say that he is. And the responses were that they thought he was Elijah or John the Baptist or some other prophet. Notice that in verse 18. It came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, whom say the people that I am? And they answering, saying, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say, one of the old prophets has risen again. I think that last statement is what is key to this response. It seems that whoever they attribute Jesus' identity to, they, all of these answers make him out to be one risen from the dead. 
who do the people, the crowds, these multitudes, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And, and all of these times they answer, well, John the Baptist, he's dead, he's been beheaded. Elijah, well, he's an Old Testament prophet, he's dead, he's been dead many years. So what are they testifying to? This must be somebody that God has brought back from the dead. Well, this becomes very problematic then. Because Jesus goes on in verse 22 to tell them that I, the Son of Man, must die, but I will be risen again. And then the test of faith becomes, could they believe that Jesus was risen again? It is awfully unique to me and identifying Christ that these people seem to have no problem that Jesus might be somebody risen from the dead, John or Elijah. But once he died and was truly risen again, some could not believe in him. From there, Jesus brings the question closer to home. Verse 20, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answering and said, the Christ of God. So now we step away from who do the crowds say that Jesus is, and over into the individual, who does Peter, who do these twelve, who do you say that Jesus is? And, and amazingly, Peter answers, not only correctly, but very well said, the Christ of God. This is Peter in his own way saying, the Messiah of the Old Covenant, the one promised. Christ is not Jesus' last name, it is his title. It's a title of honor. It meant God's anointed one. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the promised messianic prophet. The one who would come. The one who has been chosen by God and sanctified and consecrated. Not sanctified. Consecrated for sacred office. In Genesis chapter 3 we see this promise Initially, that one would come. Man has sinned and God has cursed man. And as a part of that, in chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman to the serpent, between your seed and her seed. He goes on to say, It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. To say the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, though the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. This was a promise of that that Peter is testifying has come. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, God called and used men as types of this. They were powerfully used, but they were never enough. They were just Abraham. They were just Moses. They were just David and Noah. They weren't Jesus. And here's Jesus, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Jesus replies, or Peter replies to Jesus, says, you're the Christ. Psalm 89, it's, it's prophesied more about this Christ. Chapter 89, verse 4, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Selah. This prophecy becomes more specific in Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands in Judah, out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Or Isaiah chapter 9, 
the increase of his government peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So God's people had long been awaiting the advent of this God-man, this Redeemer who would come. And by using this particular title, Christ, Peter is declaring that Jesus came from God. Phil Riken says here, the phrase of God indicates origin. So the expression Christ of God declares that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God, the Savior that God had always promised to send. This is what Peter testifies here. The title means that Jesus is the divinely appointed Savior who came to bring salvation to everyone who believes in him. So we see Jesus ask, who do the crowd say that I am? We see him ask Peter, who do you say that I am? Which I think causes us to need to consider within ourselves this morning, who do you say that he is? Who who do I say that he is? Warren Wiersbe has rightly said, it is impossible to be wrong about Jesus and to be right with God. But people disagree about Jesus' identity. Some say he's a legend. Now, I say he's legendary. He's not a legend. Others admit that Jesus existed, but they want to deny his deity. Many are interested in his teaching, but they are not interested in his miracles. And they surely aren't interested in his atoning death or his resurrection from the dead. Who is Jesus? Is he a noble prophet? Is he but a moral teacher? Is he some sort of successful politician for who for a while until they crucified him had a great following? Is he just some wise old sage? Who is Jesus? Do you profess Jesus as son of God? Maybe you recognize there is something special about Jesus, but you're not quite sure what that is. Maybe you respect his teaching and you admire his life, but you've never worshipped him as Savior and God. Are you able this morning to make the same confession that Peter made here? Before you decide, I want you to consider the rest of the information that Jesus then gives. He fills in the gap between who he is and what this means. Now as we transition here, I want to make a doctrinal distinction for you. We're talking about discipleship and not sonship. Sonship comes through adoption. But discipleship comes through living. But in the Christian life, we work these two the same. So Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then in light of those answers, he says, well, this is what it means to be that. And this is what it means for you to follow me in that. Verse 21. After Peter has said, you are the Christ of God. He straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and raised the third day. So the first thing Jesus says that this means is death. 
What does it mean to be the Christ? It means you came to die. And he charged them and commanded them that they are not to tell anyone what they now know that he is the Christ. Which is odd for us because, you know, we're told to proclaim that freely. To go into all the world and and preach this good news to every creature. We're to be telling people. Amen, Brother Lucky? We just had that conversation. About what blessed lives we live and, and, and how we are. It's so great to be an ambassador of the king. To be able to go and and tell this great news of what our king has done for us. So it's odd to us that Jesus says, I command you, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. He's saying not yet. Because later he'll say, now go and tell. R.C. Sproul gives us good understanding here. He says the disciples would almost certainly be misunderstood if they tell anyone. People will think they are proclaiming a political deliverer. Jesus is beginning to get a following. He has these men in his inner circle who are helping him. They are learning from him. And he says, if you guys start going around talking about this, it's going to become what it's not supposed to be. Nothing was to interrupt his pathway to the cross. And that's what he tells them next. He would die and rise again in verse 22. So for Jesus, being the Christ meant death. Then in verse 23, down through verse 26, Jesus explains how... Being the Christ meant denial of self. Notice what he says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. MacDonald writes, to deny self means willingly to renounce any so-called right or plan to choose. And to recognize his lordship in every area of life. It's a good definition. What does it mean when Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to do like I've done. You're going to have to deny yourself. These are clear instructions on discipleship. This is the path I've taken, Jesus said, and if you're going to be my follower, this is the path that you must take as well. You see, there's a distinguishing going on here between fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. The crowds were fans. They loved to see him. They love to hear him. They love to be around him. Who could tell what he might do next? It was interesting. It was something to do. They didn't have TVs. They weren't watching the Andy Griffith show, and there was this guy. He could do cool things. And Jesus started with that. Who do they say that I am? Great point is distinguished there. They have no problem with him living as one risen from the dead until he is. And then he says, but there's a difference. Who do you say that I am? And in that you, we have this given. What does it mean to be one of those who say he is the Christ? Well, it could mean death. For sure, Christ died for our sins. It for sure will mean denial of self. To willingly renounce any so-called right to plan or to choose because he is Lord. What area of life is he Lord over? What area of life is he not Lord over? Can he truly be Lord if he's not Lord of every area of life? MacArthur gives good clarification here on self-denial. He says the kind of self-denial he sought was not a reclusive asceticism. I had to look up reclusive asceticism. It means not an approach to living that renounces the comforts of the material world. 
So the kind of self-denial Jesus sought was not an approach to living that renounces the comforts of the material world, but a willingness to obey his commandments, serve one another, and suffer, perhaps even die for his sake. I think that's good words there. I think it's okay with Jesus that you're in comfortable clothes this morning in air condition in a padded chair. There have been those throughout church history who've done themselves wrong and, and trying to be more like Christ. He still ate. I mean, the, the, the accusation Jesus had in his life from the religious crowd, what was it? You, you, you feast and drink with sinners. Yeah, that's what they said about him. So if we're not careful, we'll take this legalistic approach to life that is what we call self-denial, and we'll feel like we're doing God a favor. And I think we might be missing this willingness to obey His commandments, this willingness to suffer, this willingness to serve one another, and maybe even die for His sake, by, by all the while cleansing our conscience by saying, yeah, but this, this, and this. And I don't know what that would be. When I was in school, they told us about some guys who would live in monasteries. You know, they just kind of give up their life and they would go and live in monasteries. Well, isn't that what it says to do in verse 24? Whosoever loses life will save it. So I'm giving up my life. I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have family. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have personal property. I'm going to live in this monastery. Well, then in the monastery, guess what happened? They had to decide how to distinguish themselves there. So it wasn't good enough that you had moved to the monastery. Then you had to be the best of the monastery. So who in the monastery, of all these people who have given up their lives... Who among that group now is giving up their lives? So then they made these poles, like totem poles, and they'd sit on top of the poles. And if you would sit up on top of the pole and not eat longer than everybody else, well, you'd given up more of your life than anyone else. And then they decided, well, then we've got to build the poles higher. And if my pole's higher than your pole, then I've given up more life than you have because it's more risky for me. And people would fall asleep and they'd fall off and break their necks and die to the glory of God. Now, you laugh and you understand the silliness of this. And I want us to understand the silliness of this, but at the same time, I never want us to mistake what Jesus is saying here. We claim to be people who say He is the Christ, but are we truly following Him in that regard? Is He lording over our lives? It means to deny yourselves. In verse 24, he does lay out this. He says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever loses life for my sake, the same shall, shall save it. Now this is one of Jesus' most repeated statements in the Gospels. Of things that he repeatedly said. This was number two, I believe. He, he's addressing this tendency that we have at self-preservation. The problem with our tendency towards self-preservation is that in the spiritual world... That only ever lends itself to us losing. Anybody who will save their life will lose it. But if we would only now give up our temporal life, we would find that we're actually already living in the eternal. I know we, we think about it like, once I die, I will enter eternity. This is true. But I want you to understand that the moment that you died to self and the Holy Spirit moved in, you had embraced this eternal life that God had foreordained from you from before the foundation of the world. And at that moment, you began living in the eternal now. 
And that's what the term means. It's, it, 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 even if it has a starting point, it has no ending place. And it's not that it just starts then. I think Pilgrim's Progress lays this out best of all. Pilgrim has to leave. He leaves his town on his journey. And you know at the end, he passes through the waters. I love that part. I'm thinking about the movie more than the book here. But all along the way, He's already embracing eternal living. He's having to choose between the temporal and the eternal. And we must do that even now. In verse 25, Jesus belabors this point by simply making the point of what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? No matter what we gain in this life, we will one day leave it all behind. And you know one of my favorite jokes is the guy who said, you know, bury me with all of my money. And at the funeral, his lawyer was grinning. You remember this? It's Brother Rye's joke, but I still like it. And people ask him, you know, did you really bury him with all his money like you want everybody to do? Bury him all? He said, oh, yeah, I wrote him a check. <laughs> I love that. That's one of my favorite jokes. Well, you, you can't take it with you. My, my pastor used to talk about uh, some of you are going to be the hearse is going to have a U-Haul behind it at your, at your funerals. Any hoarders, that's you this morning. You, you got stuff. But what have we profited? What have we gained? What are we advantaged? And I don't think there's anything wrong with things. I don't think there's anything wrong with gain. But I think there's something wrong of when we see them for ourselves or we see them for this security now. We're stewards. Everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that God puts into our life, He has put there for us to steward over. It all belongs to Him. We must live as if it's that way. And if He wants it used in a way, we let it be used in a way. If He doesn't, then we don't. We just, we're just the managers. We do what the boss says. But if we're not careful, we will use our gain in this life that we will one day leave behind as our security. We'll labor for the temporal instead of eternal. For a follower of Christ, such living could lead to shame from the world around them. And verse 26, I think, is clear here. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in the fathers and in the holy angels. We mustn't let fear of such deter us. If we live in shame of him, he will be ashamed of us. And it would be very easy to deny self, to live for the eternal, and then be shamed by the world around us. Because that's not the mentality of the world around us. It's YOLO. You only live once. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. So I'm going to live for me. I'm going to live for today. And this is not how we are to be. And we mustn't let this potential shame of eternal decisions keep us from living for Christ. So Jesus lays out here what it means to be his follower. In verse 23, the first one is to deny yourself. He follows that with take up your cross and then to follow him. And he elaborates in verse 24, 25, and 26 
and what this means and the pitfalls surrounding what this means. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? It means to choose to live like Jesus lived. He lived a life that would end on a criminal's cross, but not because he was a criminal. He was on the cross because he was sinless. But still, he lived a life that led to that end. If we're going to be his follower, we're going to deny ourselves. We're going to have to take up a cross. We're going to have to follow him. I think Romans chapter 12 lays this out best for me, for my personality. One of my favorite selections of scripture in all of the Bible. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus is the Christ. This meant death and denial of self for him. And he desires, he expresses his desire here of that same commitment for his followers. But I want you to know that there's a promise that comes along with that in verse 27. And it's the promise of a living hope. The cost of discipleship is well worth it. But I tell you of a truth, there, shall be, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Living the life of the, the disciple of Christ is life indeed. It will mean you causing the true meaning for your existence. For Christ that meant death according to verse number 22. That he would be slain and be raised again the third day. But there is a crown after the cross for Jesus. There is eternal reward. And to his followers, he says here, this will not come without reward. Yes, it means denying yourself. Yes, it means taking up your cross. This is what you must do if you will follow me. You say I'm the Christ, but are you going to live like I'm the Christ? But it won't all be self-denial because there's a crown after the cross. Some of you standing right here today, you will not die till you see the kingdom of God come in all of its glory. Some of them, if you read on from verse 28, we'll get into this next week, would see that in the, like soon. They would see the transfiguration. They would begin to experience what it is that Jesus is saying. This is the crown that comes from this type of cross-bearing life. Then these would see his crucifixion, which was horrible, but then they were able to experience his resurrection. And then they were able to see his ascension, and then they were there when the Holy Spirit came down, and the the church began on earth. So many saints, Hebrews tells us, died along the way having never received that promise. They died in faith. They believed this bunch was able to see it Happened. They saw it come down. Christ condescending. Born of a virgin. Born of man. Live a sinless life. Die on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. But not stay dead. Resurrect. Ascend to be enthroned. Send his Holy Spirit as a convictor, a guide, and a comforter to us now. That was their living hope. 
These live to see it. It's so well worth the price that Jesus describes for his disciples. Well, you and I live with a similar promise. We didn't see it, but we see the church. And as the church, we are commanded to do some things. And we're told, do these things until he comes again. Man, we live with that living hope. This could be the crowning day. This could be the day that Jesus returns. This could be the time that we see him again. What a wonderful hope that is. I always love the holidays. Because family comes in. People that you love. People that you haven't seen in a while. People that you don't always get to see through the normal ebb and flow of life. But you like them and you want to be around them. And there's always that anticipation of when are they going to get here. My sister is a surpriser. She likes to do things like, uh, I don't know why she likes to surprise, but she doesn't. She, she likes to surprise us. And she, likes, she stays at Aunt Redonna's house, and we like to know when she's coming <laughs> so, so we can make sure things are ready. And she might say, well, I'm coming sometime this weekend. I don't know exactly when. And then she'll show up that day, you know. But, oh, well, we were ready for you. Things to do and places to see. But there's always that wonderful anticipation of when's she going to get here? My parents, it's a really sad day for us, but they moved to Florida. We're thankful that the Lord called them there and is using them there in the work. But man, we liked having my parents living next door. But it's a wonderful day when we think we're going there, or they're coming here, and we're going to get to see them again. Do you think God puts it that way just so we'll love our family? No, I think these emotions are there and these understandings are there to help us remember what it's going to be like to see Jesus. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. We live in a troublesome time. But if you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And he goes on and talks more. And Thomas says, well, we don't know. How can we know? Another way, Thomas says, and Jesus says, I am the way. He says, you know me, so you know the way. Church, don't let your hearts be troubled. You're on this path of true discipleship. You're on this path of following Jesus. But it's not a path that only comes with crosses. It is a path that ends in a crown. And someday soon, we'll see our blessed Savior face to face. And then, like we like to sing at funerals, we will tell the story saved by grace. It makes me think of Brother Randy, Miss Alma. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? We sang that at his funeral. Some of us will be raptured out along the way. Some of us will see Jesus in the air. However it happens, there is a crown that comes with this cross. So I end today asking you, who do you say that he is? Is he one of the prophets? Is he some amazing person sent by God even came back from the dead? Or is he the Christ? The Redeemer, the promised one. You see that that identifying kind of buys into the whole thing.
that from Genesis to Revelation, the plan was redemption. And then I would just ask you to consider this morning, am I following Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful to consider these verses together with our church. God, help us to examine ourselves this morning. And I pray for those who are not a part of the faith today that you would save them. Lord, we thank you that in your grace you provide faith into salvation. Lord, I pray for those of us who have determined that we're saved by grace through faith. Help us to ask, are we following Christ? Are we losing our lives daily for his sake? Lord, thank you for this time together with the church. Bless this time now as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's bow and pray and take some time and talk to our Father about his word that we've just had presented to us. Ms. Wiggins will play to give us some.